everyone. My name is Deep, and this is Radio Edict. Welcome to the second part of our episode on elections, pandemic edition. We have with us Professor Gilles Vernier, and so far we have discussed the elections in Bihar and in the U.S. from the perspective of the pandemic and its impact on the issues and the players. But now I want to turn. to the question of the structures and institutions that will determine the election process so um now i want to return to the question about the election systems in both these places um they both follow the first past the post system but uh, they are you know playing out in so very different contexts in terms of the social composition of these places the electoral culture um and the party systems that they follow so yeah how uh, would the fptp system play out in bihar compared to us so uh so you're right so both the us and india have a similar party system but it produces very different effects mm. in uh the case of uh india i mean we've known for a long time that uh, the fptp system does not really prevent multipartism mm-hmm. it does not prevent highly competitive election uh but it does bring an element of ordering right the fptp yeah. was adopted in india as a way to tame what was perceived as you know the danger posed by excessive pluralism or excessive fragmentation of the party system and the yeah. um and of the um, electorate it's basically mm. a way to keep minor player at bay uh, and so forth mm. now the thing is that uh india in india you have to win election you have to con- you contest election really seat by seat right yeah. and so uh it, which means that local conditions you know are what determine you know where a, a seat will go and then you have to aggregate everything in the case of the us you have a system of aggregation that you know if you have more vote or more delegates you carry the state you know entirely no matter what other parties have uh, uh done so in a way it's a true winner take all In India, you have a winner-take-all, but at the constituency level. But in the U.S., you have it at the state level, at least for a presidential election, which is quite, mm. which is quite, uh, which is quite unique. Uh, in the case of the U.S., the FPTP system was basically introduced and maintained as a way to uh, preserve, uh, to prevent the entry of third parties. Right. Right. So we know that the Duverger law in political science, the one law that we have in political science, states <laughs> that if you have a, 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 a FPTP plurality majority system, then it should lead to a bipolar a bipolar system, right? Because it makes it very hard for a third party to gather in a vote to sort of. uh disrupt uh, an an election yeah. and so in the us the electoral system is clearly designed in a way to uh, preserve the monopoly that two parties have uh over uh the uh political system mm. it's virtually impossible for an independent or third party candidate to uh at best what they can do is disrupt the order of the election can you invest uh well let's not even mention Kanye West because he really doesn't he really doesn't matter but think about Ross Perot for example libertarian yeah, billionaire uh, mm. uh who basically ran as a third party as an independent uh, i forget which year but basically the re-election year of 
George Walker Bush, Bush mm. Senior, and he basically stole him the election in 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 a way. I mean, he did yeah. something like 15, 20% of the votes, but yeah. he took more votes among Republican voters or people who would have leaned to Republican rather than Democrat, mm. and he basically helped uh, Bill Clinton to secure a, a massive a massive victory. Mm. Right. So the, the in, in the US, the third party can have can play, you know, spoiler effect. Yeah. Now in India, as we know, uh, the FPTP has not created the bipolarism uh, that uh, the theory would expect, except that it did in a certain number of states. Right. You do have mm. a number of states where uh, yeah. it's virtually impossible for third party to uh, displace either BJP in Congress, Gujarat, yeah. Madhya Pradesh, uh, Rajasthan and so forth. Hmm. Uh, but by and large, uh, it's a system that accommodates itself fairly well with uh, the kind of pluralism that you have in Indian politics. And it's a system that is also favored by small parties because they hmm. know that even with small, the more fragmented, the greater the chance uh, exists for small parties to um, get a result that is disproportionate to their political strength. For the more competitive an election is, the lower the winning threshold is. Yeah. You know, theoretically, you could win an election with 15% of the vote, provided that everything else, it's a distribution of vote that determines yeah. the outcome more than anything else. And so the more fragmented, the better chance small parties have to get more seats than their demographic weight, you know, would entitle them to get in, in a proportional system. Hmm. And so I anticipate that you will have a question on the proportional system. Uh, the debate is very easy in India. No one, no, no political party, no political actor wants it. Yeah. Um, precisely because it is a system that helps both strong parties to remain uh, at the center of the party system. And it also helps smaller parties once in a while to get much more seats than they would get uh, even in a good uh, election or after a good campaign mm. in, in a PR, in a proportional system. Yeah. So um, I also want to talk about the effects of the pandemic on election logistics. Um, and yep. both India and US are adopting some form of uh, postal voting. Um, but the difference is that here in India, uh, all Lok Sabha and Vidhan Sabha elections are centrally planned and technocratically managed by the Independent Election Commission. While in the US, yeah. it is a patchwork of 50 different elections conducted by the state level elected officials. So yeah. how do these institutional configurations impact the execution of uh, elections? Okay, so you're asking at least two, you know, separate questions. So let me address mm. them uh, one by one. First, yeah. on uh, what can what can the election commission do in order to guarantee a relatively safe electoral process? They've actually done quite a lot. So postal ballot, by the way, has existed in India for a very long time because this mm. is how armed forces uh, have voted, uh, mm. you know, ever since India became independent. Yeah. Uh, similarly, in the US, postal ballot has been there for a, a very long time. So what we're looking at is the expansion of an existing system of voting rather than the creation of a new one. Uh, and that offers guarantees of um, safety and fairness, uh, because in both systems that actually used to deal with postal ballot um, already. 
Second, uh, I, a, there are a lot of reasons to believe that the election commission in India has the capacity to ensure uh, not just a free and fair election, but a free, fair and safe election. Mm. I think for the future, we'll have to add safe to free and fair. And mm. Uh, so uh, they have uh, provisioned large number of, you know, uh, equipment, the PPEs, the masks, the gloves, the face shields. Uh, they have provided training and we know they have the capacity to train a large number of, you know, electoral election agents, you know, in a short time. Uh, they will have uh, social distance provisions uh, during the, uh, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the polling booths. Uh, there will be, you know, sufficient provision of, you know, sanitizing equipment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the election commission has the ability to, and they've already taken a lot of steps to ensure that the act of voting uh, remains, you know, reasonably uh, safe. Yeah. What it cannot do, on the other hand, is and to ensure that the campaign abide by those principles. And we've seen, you know, mammoth rallies taking place already in Bihar with thousands yeah. and thousands of people. Yeah. agglutinated one another with no one wearing masks. Uh, and so it's probable that those rallies alone have already been, you know, uh, basically already constituting you know, super spreader events, which, uh, which mm -hmm. does not um, augur uh, well. Yeah. And so the election commission by and large is capable of uh, inducing compliance with voters, uh, but its record of doing so with uh, political parties is it's much more mixed mm -hmm. and it's in a way it's understandable because uh, contrary to the US uh, where you can actually shift most of your campaign operations to uh, to a digital digital campaigning mm -hmm. uh, in India it's not yet the case yeah. right in India digital campaigning does not constitute a, uh, a substitute to traditional modes of campaigning uh, at best, it's a complement, it's a supplement. Yeah. If you consider that in Bihar, internet penetration is only 37%, that only 27% of all phones are actually smartphones, uh, mm. there's actually no alternative if you want to reach out to voters than to campaign through conventional means. Yeah. And there's simply no way you can campaign, you can campaign conventionally uh, without posing a threat or a sanitary risk in, mm. in conditions of pandemics. Yeah. But no political party is ready to sacrifice or to take a chance mm. uh, for the sake of public safety uh, uh, in ways that could possibly cost them the uh, election. So that yeah. that is that is a big that is a big problem. Yeah. Uh, partly in the hands of the election commission, but you know it's also induced by political parties themselves. Hmm. Now, on the question of integrity, uh, there's no simple answer to that question. Of course, uh, intuitively, it's easy to state immediately that it's better to have an election that is managed by centrally by uh, uh, an effective, autonomous, independent, uh, and legitimate uh, autocratic body, yeah. like the election commission. Right, uh, and the election commission's record in India to organize a satisfactorily free and fair election has been, you know, excellent. And I mean, there's no doubt about that. There are problems, yeah. limitations, but by and large, it's yeah. done a great job. In the United States, uh, as you know, the conduct of elections is a completely decentralized matter. The mm -hmm. rules vary not just state from 
state, but sometimes county by county. Mm. And so it creates a maze of rules, regulations, uh, which creates the possibility of introducing all sorts of regulatory complexifications of the process, right? Yeah. So each county has its own rule, its own uh, model of ballots. Some uh, go electronic voting, others have paper ballots. Mm. Uh, some still use the infamous punch cards that created so much trouble in Florida in 2000. Mm, and yeah. so uh, it, it's a little bit baffling, right? That uh, for a presidential election, uh, that the outcome should be, you know, not just not necessarily determined, but should basically go through a procedure where you don't have equality in the way people vote. Yeah. Right. So that, I mean, for people in India or other observer, it's it's a little bit baffling. Exactly. Now, not not everything is necessarily wrong or evil uh, with the decentralized American system because mm. paradoxically, it's also the diversity of modes of voting is also what protects the United States uh, from uh, large scale large scale uh, interference or, mm. uh, or hacking or fraud. Yeah, it, the fact that this, this, the system is so decentralized and diverse means that the means of frauds have to be equally decentralized and diverse, which yeah. means that they are more likely to take place at a very local level where they are not too likely to have a massive uh, impact on the outcome, except yeah. in the case of an exceptionally tight election. Yeah. Uh, so if the US, for example, were to adopt a universal system uh, of electronic voting, hmm. Uh, I doubt very much that they would adopt uh, uh, a low-tech system such as India has, yeah. uh, where the EVMs are not connected to a central network, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And mm. therefore, uh, creating a universal voting system in the US would make it far more, probably far more vulnerable to uh, hacking and large-scale fraud. Yeah. Uh, than the current state. I mean, I in a way, I feel bad, you know, for the Russian or Chinese or Iranian hackers or, or, <laughs> or the Dutch hackers, I mean, whoever they're from, because they really have to go deep into, uh, okay, so this is, you know, these are, these are the rules, this is the system in Wichita County, but this is, you know, completely different from, you know, this other county, etc. So <laughs> it must be quite difficult to plan, you know, large-scale. Um, so, of course, there are other ways to disrupt an election than just to mess with the ballot system, you know, itself. It has yeah. to, Most of it has to do with disinformation campaign, fake news, and and, and, and hate news, and, 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 and so forth. Yeah. But in a way, the mess and the complexity of the American system protects it also from uh, from large-scale uh, interference. Yeah. Now, if you put things into the balance, there is something that is deeply flawed in the American system, is that there is nowhere, there is, is there an independent authority? Mm. And uh, what we've seen in Georgia, for example, during the midterm, where one of the two candidates for the governor position was the person in charge of organizing the election uh, in his camp. Yeah. Uh, and he proceeded to an exercise of massive systematic voter suppression that basically enabled him to steal his exactly. election. Yeah. So that is deeply wrong. That is deeply flawed. Uh, this is the reason why people lose faith in, 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 in democracy. This is why people, you know, a lot of people choose to place their faith uh, you know, behind uh, populist leaders who keep disparaging the system and its its norms and values, mm. and so that for me is absolutely inexplicable. How uh, an individual such as him, you know, should have been able? 
always in their provision that if you were a candidate, you know, you shouldn't run the election. Right? <laughs> and uh, yeah. I mean, it's baffling. It's baffling, right? <laughs> but that's that's a that's the byproduct of a model of uh, democracy, which from the start, and we know that since Tocqueville, you know, was very decentralized. Yeah. Always remember that democracy in the U.S. Uh, for what it's worth today uh, was a bottom-up process. Yeah. Right. And that the the, the 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 democratic pressures always came, you know, from from below rather than from the top, yeah. uh, where the founders were more, you know, eager to build, you know, a functioning republic rather than a functioning democracy. Yeah. Um, systems also are the product of their histories. Yeah. So I, I want to take you up on this point about interference in elections, but um, not from the point of view of external interference, but uh, rather internal interference, if I may. And what I'm referring yeah. to here is the backdrop of uh, Citizens United in the US and the electoral yeah. bond scheme in India. Uh, so yeah. could you tell our listeners what is dark money and what is the role that dark money will be playing in the upcoming elections? Well, what we refer to as dark money is basically the uh, funds provided for electoral funding that uh, are not accounted for, that mm. have no accountability as regard to their use and more particularly their origin. Yeah. Right, and both in the US and in India, uh, the opacity of electoral funding or political funding has been actually organized and further institutionalized in, in, in recent years by Citizens United uh, in the US, by the electoral bond decision uh, in um, India. Yeah. But I mean, even before, it's not that you had great transparency uh, before, but uh, all, what these decisions represent is basically, you know, a further institutionalization of the opacity of political uh, funding, yeah. and uh, on different grounds. Because Citizens United was basically based on a recognition that money is speech. Yeah. That you know that you know you should not be hindered in any way to express and defend your opinions. Uh, by basically throwing money, uh, you know, at it. Uh, and in the case of India, interestingly, there was this, you know, interesting rhetorical exercise that consisted in saying that, look, we'll have um, electoral bond, which is a formal mechanism, which is basically a way to uh, avoid, you know, the, the, the circulation of black money, you know, for election. But wow. that basically creates uh, multiple layers of opacity that sort of defeats the purpose of uh, integrity or uh, transparency that it claims to achieve. Another difference uh, between the two systems is that uh, the dark money and the super PACs uh, exist for both political parties. And even though the Republicans have been pushing for more and more deregulation of, you know, party of, of political funding, mm. uh, it turns out that the Democrats can, you know, sort of equally benefit from it. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. and we see today how the uh, the Democrats actually are uh, uh, outfunding uh, the Republicans by almost a margin of two, which in which is considerable. Yeah. In India, uh, the basically the formalization of you know corporate donations through uh, the electoral bond has been 
almost at the sole advantage of the BJP of the party in power. Right. And so not only has it the, 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 the mechanism institutionalizes further the opacity of the system, but it creates a structural advantage for one yeah. particular party, which I suspect may dilute itself once corporate India uh, finally chooses to desert the BJP. Mm -hmm. uh, should an alternative arise, which of course is still a far-fetched you know, notion at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it does create an unfair competitive advantage to um, the party, into the party in, in power. And it's not clear that uh, the electoral bond have come as a substitute to other form of dark money that pre-existed. Mm, mm. Because if you look at the discrepancy, I don't have you know the figures at the tip of my fingers, but you know if you think that in 2019 uh, the campaign you know party spent between six and eight billion dollars you know mm. for the election, uh, it's only a fragment that was generated you know through uh, through the electoral bond. Yeah right? Uh, a few thousand crores. Sure. And so you still have a huge gap you know, between the amount that are officially raised through that mechanism, which again protects the anonymity of donors mm. and, uh, and what is actually spent. But actually you could make a case that in India, it's better to protect the anonymity of donors because mm. those who give money to opposition parties, you know, can find themselves targeted. Right. Right. So right. Uh, app was app was praised all over the world for putting online the list of their contributors with the amount of money they given. And then, you know, a few months later, they withdrew that information from their website. And when they were criticized, they said, yeah, but all of these people were getting raised and, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> getting, yeah. you know, raided by the enforcement directorates. And, and yes. And so um, and so it became, you know, uh, it became a liability to mm. donate to uh, another party than the BJP. Yeah. And, so, and so they had to sort of renege on that will of transparency, but in order to protect their, uh, in order to protect their uh, donor. Yeah. So things are, things are always a little bit more complicated and nuanced uh, <laughs> yeah. than, they seem, than they seem to be. Okay, so I want to turn to our final question. Um, we are in a moment of uh, a great economic crisis, uh, large impending ecological disasters, and uh, no doubt, uh, a, a, a once in a century public health crisis. And you mentioned the New Zealand elections at the beginning of this podcast, and they had the highest turnout that they had seen in 20 years, and they saw the largest single party vote share in more than 70 years. Do you, in your opinion, predict that the elections in Bihar and the US will also be similarly decisive? So I'm not uh, asking you to predict yeah. the winner, but do you think the winner yes. will be chosen decisively? Uh, so first, I mean, I don't think you can really put these elections side by side. I mean, if you look at New Zealand, actually over a long period of time, turnout has decreased. They used to have 90% plus participation. Mm -hmm. New Zealand doesn't have compulsory voting, but they have compulsory enrollment. Okay. Right? 
And then you can make an, uh, an, uh, there's probably an argument that there's a sort of civic culture that's, you know, uh, brings a lot of people to participate uh, and, and, and so forth. Yeah. But it's a bit of a particular case. Uh, what we've seen in recent years is that there's been sort of an increase of um, decisive victories in Indian elections mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, a lot of voters and particularly undecided voters sort of throw their weight behind, you know, the presumptive winner of an election. Yeah. So uh, India actually has far more undecided voters than uh, we usually think. Yeah. I think in 2019, there were about 40% of voters surveyed, you know, a number of months before the election, say that they mm. didn't know yet whom, to whom they were going to vote. Okay. But once, you know, a sort of a winner emerges, you know, through the phenomenon of what we call Hawa, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it, it's, it has some sort of a suction effect. Yeah. Right. And a lot of yeah. people like to side, you know, with the, um, with the uh, winner. Mm. And... Uh, but the increase of decisive victories has basically accompanied also the rise of the BJP, mm. uh, who has the ability to create sort of not necessarily new, but social coalition that uh, prove very hard to you know, compete against or defeat for uh, other parties who rely more on you know, the solidity of a more narrow segment of the electorate. Right. And so uh, there is an idea that uh, parties that offer some sort of a more um, inclusive outlook in terms of electoral appeal mm. have a premium. And the parties who build their strength and who rose mm. through the mobilization of specific segments of the electorate, usually based on caste, but not only, uh, are today in trouble. So the SP and its Yara vote base is in trouble. The RGD and its Yara vote base is in trouble. The BSP and its Jata Valid vote base is in trouble because these parties now have difficulties sort of creating the large social coalition that are required to um, win uh, elections. We see also that the winning thresholds have sort of increased. And so in UP before, you could win a single majority of seats with 28, 29, 30% of the votes. Right. But now you need 40 Right, mm. and so your elect in order to get forty percent of the vote, your electoral strategy cannot be the same than the one that you had in order that enable you to get thirty percent of the votes. Mm. And uh, regional parties, caste-based parties, have currently difficulty adapting themselves to that situation, which creates sort of a, not necessarily a distortion, but it creates a situations where the BJP is able to have these huge victories. Right. Yeah. But what we see also is that it's not working, you know, um, systematically. Uh, and the BJP actually has lost more elections than it has won uh, state elections. Uh, yeah. I mean, regardless of all the advantages that they have compared mm. to their um, opponents. Mm. And so even if you have more, you know, this is a victory that look more decisive it can still go in both ways, mm. right? And, uh, and elections in India, and that's a good thing, it's a fortunate thing, uh, remain highly competitive. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Professor. This was uh, a, a very interesting and a very knowledgeable episode. Uh, thanks for joining us and thank you to our listeners. Yeah, my pleasure, really. Thank you.